Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Panarella. Welcome to 2024, our first podcast of 2024. And today's topic is canine parainfluenza virus, abbreviated CPIV. CPIV is a viral respiratory disease of dogs. It is a primary disease, but also it can be part of what's called kennel cough or canine infectious tracheobronchitis. Other diseases that can, um, or viruses and bacteria that can cause kennel cough are uh, CAV2, which we already talked about, canine adenovirus 2, and the bacteria Bordetella bronchiseptica, and there's many others. We haven't talked about Bordetella yet, but I'll talk about Bordetella when I talk about kennel cough. Canine parainfluenza virus is, we haven't really talked about what are zoonotic diseases, although we did, I remember during rabies, talk about what a zoonotic disease is. Canine parainfluenza virus, technically a zoonotic, but primarily that would only be with immunocompromised people. So as long as you have a normal functioning immune system, you should be fine. The virus, like many viruses we've already talked about, are worldwide. It is part of the family of paramyxoviridae viruses, subfamily paramyxoviridae. It was actually first identified in monkey kidney cell culture in the 1950s, in 1956. It was, uh, uh, they had tested the uh, monkeys that uh, were in captivity and, and only monkeys in captivity seroconverted after human contact. So what this means is that people were carrying and transmitting this virus. People didn't get ill, but they subsequently infected the monkeys in captivity. They had sampled wild monkeys at the time and not found the virus in wild monkeys. So that meant it was a, a disease of captivity on, upon exposure to human beings. In dogs, the virus was first isolated in 1967. So it, it's clear that the virus was, was present prior to 1956, but only isolated from dogs in 1967. And that was because it was a respiratory disease outbreak, and they isolated the viruses that cause it, or the virus that causes it. So at the time of the discovery of this virus, it was called simian virus 5, also called parainfluenza virus 5, also called canine parainfluenza virus 2, and today we just call it canine parainfluenza virus. So all those names actually are synonymous. It's, it's a lot, but it's a, it's, a, it's a little odd because we're going to talk about some things with these viruses that it's sort of, it's hard to imagine, but... Let me just briefly mention cell culture. Uh, monkey cell cultures are used and were used to create many different things in a lab, and one of them being vaccines. So the reason they know this is that they found in the cell cultures they were testing the cell cultures because you don't want cell cultures to be infected with viruses because that will change the outcome of what you're trying to do in the lab. So primarily, this is a do uh, disease of dogs, although ferrets and captive coyotes and red fox can be infected. And again, that's probably either transmission from infected dogs or people that are carrying the virus, spreading it to those animals. Domestic cats can shed the virus, but typically they're not getting ill from, they have no clinical signs from uh, parainfluenza, canine parainfluenza. Prevention, I had mentioned, this is part of the core vaccines of dogs, part of the DA2 PPV. There's the distemper, the, the adeno, 
the parvo, and now this is the final P, power influenza virus. Typical course of vaccinations is at 8, 12, and 16 weeks of age. So that's two months at three months and at four months of age. Boosted in one year, and then most vaccines today of this nature are recommended to be boosted every three years. And again, typically not recommended for pregnant females. So specifics of this disease transmission, and when you think about respiratory diseases, there's uh, a lot of when an animal or human being, just think about yourself, sneezes, there's a tremendous amount of droplets that go out, or you cough or a dog cough. So this is oral nasal exposure to respiratory secretions, aka droplets. It is likely that a contaminated fomite, again, a leash, a brush, anything, a dog bowl, let's say, that's shared amongst multiple animals, one ill animal coughs around dog bowl. The dog bowl is now infected as basically as long as that virus is alive. And as long as the virus doesn't dry out or desiccate, that virus is probably going to be active. So it's not been proven that fomites are means of transmission, but it's highly likely. And this disease in captivity, so if you think about dogs in a kennel a scenario for a moment, many dogs in a confined environment, maybe not with the best ventilation system, you're going to get very rapid spread of this virus from one, one dog to another. Viruses' durability in the environment. This is an enveloped RNA virus, and if you recall back when I mentioned enveloped viruses, enveloped viruses are slightly easier to kill than non-enveloped viruses. Just the mere use of a detergent, such as washing your hands with soap and water, will break down the virus. It will also wash the virus off, but that detergent will break down the um, the, the fatty envelope of the virus, but also dilute bleach solutions of 1% to 3% will, will kill the virus. Incubation is particularly short, 7 to 9 days. Most diseases we, we talk about so far, it's about that one-week time frame. And the virus... The, the viral tropism is for respiratory epithelium, and that's usually primarily in the upper respiratory tract, anywhere from the trachea up. Although there can be some infection of the uh, bronchioles, so anything from the basically the major airway. So we're not talking the actual lung per se, the alveoli of the lung. We're just talking about the, the tubes that connect all the way up uh, to the trachea. And the what is the virus doing? What's the pathophysiology to the to the body to the cells? The virus is getting in and causing vacuolation, basically making holes and killing uh, the tracheal and bronchiolar epithelial cells. And then you're also getting hyperplasia of those epithelial cells. So the cells that don't die, they multiply. So you get a little bit of a a thicker lining to the trachea and the bronchi. And with the infiltration of the virus, you're getting infiltration of inflammatory cells, right? Because the body's trying to attack the invader. And then you're then there's a buildup because of the inflammation of exudate. And then you get also inflammation of the olfactory mucosa. And that's also called catarrhinitis. And catar is just a great word. It's spelled C-A-T-A-R-R. -R. 
A-H or C-A-T-A-R-R-H-A-L, catarrhal rhinitis. That just means that, that rhinitis, right, is, is in your nose, in a dog's nose. They have a very large surface area in their nose. And they're getting the buildup of material on uh, on the mucosa. And that leads to a serous discharge, maybe, or it could lead to um, a secondary infection where now you're getting uh, bacteria and pus being created. The clinical pathology of this virus is not going to be much. You might get a mild leukopenia, which is a, a mild suppression of the uh, white blood cells. Or conversely, you can have a marked leukocytosis, which is an increase in the white blood cells. It just depends on uh, how severe the infection really is for this particular animal. Clinical signs are none to mild to moderate upper respiratory disease, and typically this is classified or thought of as a dry, harsh, packing cough that usually lasts up to a week. And the classic sign is I have treated many dogs for kennel cough in my career, but the classic sign is when you do your physical exam, you can palpate the dog's trachea. And generally speaking, if you gently palpate the trachea, the trachea is the ring of cartilage. It's about 90% complete. And at the top, there's a membrane that goes across that doesn't have cartilage. But with gentle palpation, also gentle squeezing, you're going to get a few coughs out of the dog. And that's pretty classic to, to diagnose kennel cough. It doesn't per, per se diagnose uh, parainfluenza virus or CAV2 virus or Bordetella, but it, it's, a, it's a diagnostic, it's pathognomonic, it's a classic clinical sign for infectious tracheobronchitis or kennel cough itself, not, not a particular virus or bacteria. Fever, generally low grade. We can have nasal discharge, I said, a mucoid or a serous, serous being clear, mucoid being a little bit cloudy. Pharyngitis, so there's inflammation in the back of the dog's throat. Tonsillitis are just, tonsils are just lymph nodes in the back of the throat. So you, you can, when you do an oral exam on an animal, you can look back and you can see the tonsils might be swollen. And of course, you're going to have some inflammation. We had mentioned inflammation in the mucosa, right? So pharyngitis is inflammation in the back of the throat. And animals can shed virus for up to 10 days post-infection. As you can see with all this packing, it's going to be easy for these droplets to get out and then for the virus to be spread from one animal to another. Diagnosis today, if you uh, are uh, going to um, try to make a, a, a definitive diagnosis, is a swab. Ideally, it's a polyester swab. There has been... Um, some discussion on using not using cotton swabs because the there's usually bleach used to make the cotton uh, I believe white but also um, probably remove any bacteria but I think the bleaching is mostly for the coloring uh, that this can inactivate viruses so most it, it's recommended to use a polyester swab and it would be easy to get nasal secretions and then send that off to the lab for a definitive diagnosis. That's why PCR polymerase chain reaction, it's actually isolating or and amplifying a particular virus. Treatment, there is no specific treatment. Treatment is a TLC. Generally, this can be self-limiting, so you want to uh, try to, number one, limit the cough as long as the animal is eating 
and relatively active, that's good, but you also want to isolate the animal and not expose it to other dogs. And then obviously for up to 10 days, once the infection goes away, uh, you want to uh, use any supportive care that's necessary, possibly antibiotics. Most of the time, these are multiple organisms are involved, and usually there's bacteria involved in kennel cough, so you're going to probably give um, antibiotics and some cough suppressants. You want to make sure the animal is eating. And again, most dogs are going to recover. Only in the case of a lower respiratory infection or pneumonia would there possibly be the chance of, uh, of it being fatal, but that would involve other viruses and other bacteria. It would not be a fatality from our influenza virus, unless the animal did have a poor or weak immune system. The duration of immunity is really actually, this is one of the odd things about this disease, there's actually not a lot published specifically on canine power influenza virus. It's usually spoken of or written about in context of kennel cough. So there's a lot of mixing of information about other viruses and other bacteria as, par as a part of kennel cough. I have one link for you, an article that I found was written about 10 years ago in JAVMA. The JAVMA is the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. It was pretty in-depth talking about canine parainfluenza virus. So the virus itself is going to try to suppress the innate immune system because that will promote its survival, right? Part of the virus's per se job is to survive because if, if the immune systems were sufficient enough to get rid of it, it, the virus might stop. But it's been around for probably coming on close to 100 years. So that means that the virus has a way to, to stay alive, and part of it is by suppressing the immune system. One way, you can have antibodies measured. You can have what's called an acute and convalescent. The convalescent is a recovering serum. And generally, you could pull a blood sample, and then two, three weeks later, you could pull another blood sample and measure the antibodies. One thing that we had... Uh, not talked about, but this is a, a great topic, is what's called an anamnestic response. And the one good article that I read said that there's really not a lot of information. Probably the veterinary pharmaceutical companies that are producing these vaccines have an idea about how long the antibodies are, they, they, they lasted, they tested, and got a result back. But what an anamnestic response is, you can have technically a zero titer. And if an animal is exposed or even revaccinated, let's say exposed to the virus or revaccinated, that the, generally speaking, the B cells, there's going to be a few B cells, which you can't really measure, but they are going to get reactivated and they're going to uh, create a proper immune response. So even though an animal might have a zero titer, it's probably going to have an anamnestic response. If it has a healthy and normal immune system, that immune system is going to get cranked right back up again to protect the dog. So remember, vaccines are there to prevent mortality and morbidity. In this case, the morbidity of kennel cough. Generally speaking, you're not going to get mortality from kennel cough. So that completes the core vaccine virus components of dogs. I think the next podcast series I'm going to do, I'm going to, uh, we'll talk about the core vaccines for cats. 
This is Dr. Panarella. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday and, and safe holiday season. And I'll see you again soon. Thank you.